I, I think that there is an optimal number. I think the problem we often have with that discussion is it centers around the number eight, that you've got to get eight hours of sleep. And I think that's always dangerous to apply an average to an individual. So I think it's perfectly fair to say for the average young adult, eight hours of sleep on average is what is best for you. Um, The problem is if you live on either end of the bell curve, that piece of advice I've just given you can be harmful. So if you're somebody who needs nine hours of sleep, and they certainly exist out there, I've just told you to seek eight, which is going to create a sleep deprivation situation in you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Program Life Podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Every two weeks, I bring in a world-class expert on a topic related to productivity or mental health. And our guest on this episode today is Dr. Chris Winter, one of the most respected experts on sleep. He's a sleep researcher, board-certified neurologist, double board-certified sleep specialist, and he has helped more than 10,000 patients rest better at night, including countless professional athletes. He's also been a consultant to many professional sports teams from the MLB to the NFL, NHL, and the NBA. He recently came out with a book called The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this episode because it's not the typical sleep information you see on the mainstream media. He really digs in deep on this topic. So real quick, if you want my key takeaways on this episode and the show notes, just head over to programlife.info and you can also sign up for my exclusive email list. You can also follow me on Instagram, yogeshprabhu2, that is Y-O-G-E-S-H-P-R-A-B-H-U-2, and my Twitter at yogeshprabhu03. That's enough plugin for me. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So, Dr. Winter, welcome to the show. And I'm happy to have you on the show because your book is amazing and I have like lots of notes on it, pages of notes actually. And it's called The Sleep Solution Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. It thanks really so has. Much. Oh, sorry. I was going to yeah. say thanks for having me, Yogesh. Appreciate it. That's very nice yeah, for you no- to say. Yeah, um, it really has a mix of professional experience, cutting edge science and personal stories too. And also surprisingly, it has a lot of humor and which I really didn't expect. And I felt that after reading the book, it's as comprehensive as a book could be in terms of helping people really understand on an individual level what their sleep problems really are and how to actually solve them. So I would like to start off by asking you, what was your motivation behind writing this book? And were there any road bumps that you hit when putting it together? I think one of my motivations was the belief that neurologists aren't very funny, like you just said, that you were surprised when you read a book by a neurologist that it was actually funny. So I think that's a terrible uh, predisposition to have towards neurologists. We're hilarious people. Um, I'm kidding. All of us are, we, we are not. <laughs> My wife thinks we're, we're a kind of adult lot. Um, uh, so I, I think that part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was that I think that sleep 
science is fascinating. I think it's extremely vibrant and dynamic. I think it can be funny at times. And I think that sometimes the way it's presented um, in its seriousness sometimes kind of sends the wrong message. It makes it a little bit difficult for people to understand. Um, and I also think that it, it, it frankly kind of scares people sometimes. I mean, I think it's important for us to talk about, you know, what happens if you're working two jobs and driving an Uber in between and you're not getting enough sleep. It's not the safest, most healthy thing that you can engage in. But, you know, I also think that there's a lot of information that puts a lot of fear into people. Um, and one thing that's not good is to go to bed feeling fearful uh, of what's about to happen. So I felt that if I made it funny and approachable, it might take a little bit of the pressure off uh, when you go to bed at night to help you sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that definitely did. And Early on in your book, you mentioned statistics from the National Sleep Foundation, and you said 30% of primary care doctors um, ask patients about their sleep. Why is this percentage so low? I think it's a couple things. Uh, I think, number one, sleep is not something that is heavily talked about in medical school. So I think the first reason why... Um, primary care doctors don't bring the topic up a lot is that they're not really trained or equipped to know what to do. If somebody's coming in coughing up blood or describing right lower quadrant pain, I think primary care doctors know exactly what to do in those situations. Sometimes when an individual says, I'm struggling to sleep or I always fall asleep in church, there may not be that ready bank of knowledge that primary care doctors can pull from to effectively deal with those individuals. So I think that's number one. Number two, I, I think, is that these, these issues take a bit of time. Um, so time is not something a lot of primary care doctors have at their fingertips. They've got to see a lot of patients in a day uh, to pay the bills. Um, they're having to deal with their patients' obesity, smoking, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, you know, the wound on their foot that's not healing particularly well. I, I think at the end of a visit like that, to then say, hey, Mr. Smith, how have you been sleeping lately, would probably put primary care doctors out of business just because of the time that it would take to deal with those responses. So I think it's a mixture of just lack of training and lack of time to be able to commit to understanding their patient's sleep disorders and really coming up with a cohesive solution for them. Yeah, and I definitely agree with you on that. And I think another uh, factor would be that people also don't consider sleep as a thing that could be medically cured or they don't consider sleep as important in their lives. Um, so I wanted to ask you, why do people overlook sleep so much these days, and can you provide some drawbacks of what happens when you don't when you don't have good sleep? That's a good point. I mean, this is something that I run into in you know maybe the consulting that I do, where I work with a professional sports team, and you know the first thing I try to establish when I go there is creating a culture where sleep is talked about and prioritized. 
you know, we can't solve all the problems and fix all the problems on day one. But if we can get an individual or an organization to start elevating the topic of sleep to a level of high importance, um, getting an organization to prioritize the sleep of their athletes, it really makes all the difference. So, I mean, I think that historically, um, sleep has always been looked at as a trait. You know, an individual is short or tall. They have green eyes or blue eyes. They have dark hair or light hair. They are good sleepers or bad sleepers. I don't think that people looked at that as a modifiable health variable. Um, and I think that's changing. So, yeah, I mean, I think as we understand more of what sleep is linked to in our health, we know that sleep is linked to cardiovascular health, cognitive health, digestive health. I and mean, you name a topic, I'm sure it's related to sleep. I think as doctors start looking at that, you know, they start looking at not only the short game, the short game. Okay, the patient comes in and their hand is cut very badly. So we've got to take care of this immediate problem now. You know, sleep's a much longer game. It's 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 like cholesterol. Okay, well, you know, if your cholesterol levels are a little high and you don't deal with them today, you're probably going to be okay for a while. Um, sleep's kind of the same way. It's it's not a heart attack. It's very much the opposite in terms of a time span. But I think as doctors are really trying to focus on both the short-term and the long-term goals, I'm not sure that you can affect long-term health goals any more effectively um, than actually looking at and caring for the, the sleep health of your patients. And I think as doctors start to accept that, it's becoming more and more commonplace for them to bring sleep science and sleep medicine into their own practice and involve the help of other sleep specialists. Yeah. And I definitely agree when you said that people think of sleep as almost like a trait, like um, it's almost like, like me as an IB student, like almost in the IB community, we almost like say that sleep, sleep is almost like a joke. It's almost like a meme because we, we don't get much sleep because of how much work we're, uh, put onto. But yeah, it's like almost like when you go to school, someone says, Oh, I got like five hours of sleep last night. And then someone just replies and says, Oh, well, that's nothing. I got like two hours of sleep. And yeah, definitely agree with you on that. And it relates to your first chapter also uh, titled, What is Sleep Good For? And Absolutely Everything. And it really showed me how important sleep is. And a really good quote that I liked from it was, when it comes to the connections between sleep and many other things going on in our bodies, there's almost no disease or organ system in which you cannot find some kind of relationship to. Can you give me a brief overview, overview of what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 well, first of all, the the sleep. What is it good for? Absolutely, everything was a, a borrowed from an, a, a song lyric by Edwin Starr. Who wrote a song called "War." What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. So that that was the joke there. But you know, mm. you know, I, I think that it's we kind of played sort of a five degrees of Kevin Bacon and tried to figure out, well, name something that your body does, name a pathological process, name something that's good for your body. And I can promise you we can relate it back to sleep in five steps or less. Um, you know, it's interesting when you think about like something like the circadian rhythm, you know, everybody thinks of the circadian rhythm as being related to our sleep. And it is, 
but it's related to everything our bodies do. It's just that sleep is sort of something that you can outwardly see. You know, when somebody's circadian rhythm is on point, they're in bed and waking up at the same time quite naturally versus, you know, some of the students that you were talking about where, you know, sleep is worn like a merit badge. Oh, yeah, well, I got two hours sleep. Oh, yeah, I pulled a 48-hour all-nighter before my physical chemistry final, you know, whatever. You know, I think there's a certain level of, uh, bravado that goes along with disregarding sleep in, in particularly in academic and certain work situations. So, yeah, I just wanted to call the attention to the idea that this is not a niche subject. Um, you know, when you think of pillars of health, nutrition, exercise, sleep, you know, mental wellness, I think are the four things that sort of hold us all up. And sleep's got its fingers in everything. I mean, from the way your bone mineralizes to the way you digest food to the, you know, the wrinkles in your skin uh, to the, you know, the brittleness of your hair to the way you uh, perceive the emotional content of somebody's speeches to stupid mistakes you make on an art history exam. All of these things relate directly to the quality and quantity of your sleep. Yeah, and you mentioned just now that um, about waking up naturally, and I just wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on waking up to an alarm compared to waking up naturally to your biological, like internal clock system? I mean, ideally, you would be on a schedule where you're feeling like, okay, I'm setting an alarm, but I always seem to be waking up in or around that time. Um, I have certainly known people who are 100% reliant on their own ability to wake up without alarms. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely practical. Um, I certainly would not trust myself, even in the best of sleeping situations, to simply wake up, you know, before I needed to get up for some important appointment. So, I mean, I think that alarms are fine. You know, perhaps using an alarm that uses sunlight to kind of recreate a sunrise in your bedroom might be better than an alarm that has this terrifying buzzer that, you know, wakes you in the morning. Um, yeah. But I think they're fine. I think it's just important that whether you use an alarm or not, you're always making sure that you're getting enough sleep and your sleep is relatively, you know, scheduled in a pretty predictable fashion. Mm-hmm. All right. And if there were a person that what, what would be the starting point for someone that is trying to get to bed, like, let's say, I don't know, 10 o'clock, but then they're lying in bed for like two or three hours, where do they start and how do they go about self-assessing themselves and actually getting to fall asleep? Yeah, I, I think that, that, you know, we all pick a schedule and start somewhere. Sometimes we can make an educated guess based upon the amount of sleep you know, a Fitbit's been telling us over the last month we get every night, um, or it might just be something that's more behavioral. You tend to always feel sleepy and want to go to sleep around 10, so you make that your bedtime. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask people who come to my clinic is, uh, who say, okay, I go to bed at 10 o'clock, Chris, and it takes me two hours to fall asleep every night. I love to ask the question, why did you decide 10 o'clock was your bedtime? It's always such an interesting array of answers you get to that question. So my first question when I run into somebody at a dinner party who says, oh, you're a sleep doctor. Well, I go to bed at 10 o'clock every night and 
it takes me two hours to fall asleep. I'm just sitting there in the dark. My first question is always, how do you feel about that? And if the answer is, well, I don't care. I kind of like being in bed awake. Then I don't think that's a problem at all. If somebody says, oh, it just drives me crazy. I hate it. It, you know, it just makes me so frustrated. Then, you know, you might want to explore going to bed closer to 11 or 12 o'clock if that's what's naturally happening. You know, I always tell people, if your you know lunchtime is 10 a.m. and you keep going to the restaurant at 10 o'clock and the waitress comes and says, what do you want to eat? And you say, I'm not that hungry. Eventually, my guest is going to sit down next to you in the booth and say, sweetheart, you come to my restaurant every day at 10 o'clock, but you never order a sandwich until around noon. Why don't you come to my restaurant tomorrow, but just come at noon instead of coming at 10? You know, so I, nobody goes to the restaurant when they're not hungry. I don't think it's a great idea for us to go to bed when we're not sleepy. You know, if somebody says, oh, but I'm so sleepy at 10 o'clock. It just takes me two hours to fall asleep. I would challenge the notion that you're sleepy at 10 o'clock. You may be fatigued at 10 o'clock, you know, tired from the day, but your behavior is illustrating anything but sleepiness at that time. So I tell people, you know, rule number one with sleep is don't go to bed until you're sleepy. You know, don't go to the restaurant until you're hungry. Um, I think that's really important. Um, but again, if somebody says, look, I like going to bed at 10 and just kind of meditating or praying or thinking about my, you know, the exams that I've got coming up. And I'm, you know, I use that time to think about the things I need to study and I review art history notes and things at that time. That's all fine. You know, I personally like being in bed awake. I think it's delightful. So, you know, this idea that if I went to bed tonight, and it took me an hour to fall asleep, I would be upset about it and talking about it the next day. No, it's it's okay. It doesn't generally happen, but if it happens tonight, I got plenty of things on my mind that I want to think about and sort out, and I enjoy that sort of peaceful, quiet, protected time in order to do those kinds of things. Yeah, and you also just mentioned the words fatigue and sleepy. And in your book, you also talk about the difference between them. Can you delve deeper in what the difference between fatigueness and sleepiness is? These two words. But before I, before I do, I'm going to I'm going to compliment you. You've definitely read my book. I've done a lot of interviews <laughs> with people, and I know people are busy. And God knows, if I were a interviewer or a media person, there's no way you could read all the books before your interview. But I really appreciate yeah. this. It's fun to talk to somebody who's really read the book. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I, that, that was an important chapter to me because as a clinician, I think one of the things that we all get tripped up on is the word tired. And in the English language, we actually use the word tired to mean two very different things. We use it to mean sleepy. I'm so tired. I don't want to finish watching this episode of 90 Day Fiance. I want to go to bed. Um, that generally means I'm sitting here watching this show, but my eyes are closing and I keep falling asleep. Therefore, I'm going to stop, turn off some lights, get a drink of water and go to bed um, because you are having trouble maintaining wakefulness. So you are exhibiting a strong drive to sleep. Therefore, you are sleepy and some people use the word tired to mean sleepy. Other people use the word tired to mean fatigued. I have run 18 miles of this marathon, and I'm questioning why I entered into this race. 
my legs feel like they are hollow. The mitochondria feel like they are no longer accepting my body's ATP or I've run out of it. And I don't have the energy to finish up the last eight miles of this race. Therefore, I'm going to quit. I'm going to sit down on the side of the road. I'm going to drink some Gatorade and wait until the strength comes back into my body. Then I'm going to go home and pretend like I never entered this race. So that's a very different definition of tired. A football player at the end of a football game is tired during the media interviews. He's not falling asleep during the interviews. He just wants to rest. So the other definition of tired is fatigued. It's a low amount of body energy. Um, I always kind of liken it to the flu. Sometimes you get the flu and you're just kind of knocked out on a couch and you're sitting there watching some daytime, you know, Judge Judy show or something like that. You're not falling asleep, but you literally don't have the energy to get up from the couch and go do anything. You're just kind of Mm -hmm. paralyzed with fatigue. And the problem is because we don't differentiate those things sometimes, for some individuals, there's a natural instinct that when you feel fatigued, you go to sleep. Oh my gosh, I am so fatigued. I don't want to feel this way anymore. Therefore, I'm not not going to finish folding this load of laundry. I'm not putting any more plates in the dishwasher. I'm just going to bed um, because I'm so fatigued. Well, that's fine, but a lot of those individuals, when they get into bed, they don't fall asleep right away because they're not sleepy. They were fatigued. So when you're fatigued, rest. When you're sleepy, go to bed. But when you start doing the opposite, it can kind of create problems. So imagine yourself dealing with a disorder of fatigue. Maybe you have a tick-borne illness. Maybe you've got really significant hypothyroidism. There's a lot of things that can cause fatigue. So you're at home. This disorder has not been diagnosed. For the last three or four days, you felt pretty rough and you're thinking, oh, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I'm going to bed. I'm going to get some sleep and hopefully I'll feel better the next day because I'm so fatigued. Sleep will make that feel better. So you hop into bed and guess what? You don't fall asleep. So now you're frustrated because you're thinking, oh, if I could just sleep, I wouldn't feel so fatigued the next day, although it has nothing to do with your sleep. So that's when you know doctor's visits start to take a bad turn because at the doctor's office, you're like, I'm feeling so bad and I just can't get the sleep to get this you know, disorder to go away. So this doctor says, well, here, take these sleeping pills. That way you can sleep and you won't feel so tired the next day. So things start off honestly enough, but simply put, not enough questions were asked. And that starts a behavior that can become very problematic over time. Yeah, that was a great explanation. And um, one of the things that I was really curious about from your book is like something that um, I don't think you mentioned is a lot of people think of sleep as some kind of like, like a tool to be more productive and something that they can, they have to follow or they have to adjust to. Um, In your opinion, should people see sleep in this manner as something they have to follow, like strictly like eight hours of sleep every day, exercise in the morning, every time you wake up, Um, almost like the military analogy that you, you used in your book. Or should people sleep? Uh, think of sleep as something that is suited for them, and that is more of a subjective matter. And people should find sleep the sleep schedule that's perfect for them. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of a mixture of both of those things. I think that everybody listening to this podcast 
has an individual need for sleep, an individual individualized timing of their sleep. So there are some people listening to this that seven hours is perfect for them and they like to get their seven hours between 1 a.m. and 8 a.m. And there's other people listening to this who are more morning oriented and need nine hours of sleep. So they like to go to bed closer to eight uh, and, and, and get up you know, nine hours later. Um, and, and, and so I, the reason I would say it's sort of a mixture of both is once you've determined what's right and what's healthy for you, I do think that keeping on a schedule where that's a relatively routine sort of situation is best. So, you know, if you're that individual who needs seven hours and you like to go to bed at 11 and get up at six, once you've figured out, hey, this, this schedule works pretty well for me, it's probably a good idea for you know more nights than not to try to stick to that 11 to 6 schedule you know mm-hmm. and we talk a lot about people particularly younger people students who have what, what we call social jet lag so during the week you know i got an 8 o'clock chemistry you know class on monday wednesday and friday tuesdays and thursdays i don't have a class until 3 so i usually sleep in until noon on those days and on the weekend you know all bets are off you know i'll stay up all night some nights if 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 the evening's going well kind of thing so yeah. having that situation where your brain never really understands what it's supposed to be doing at say 8 a.m. some days you're up getting ready for that chemistry class other days, you've got four more hours that you're going to spend in bed. Other days, you may not have even gone to sleep until eight o'clock. You know, you finally stagger home from a party. So those kinds of situations, your brain really likes predictability. And that's why I use the military a lot. You know, whether you are in favor of that kind of lifestyle or not, there's something to be said for every day being very similar to the, the last and the next in terms of meal timing, exercise, light, social interaction. You know, when you keep things consistent, your brain really understands where it is in a 24-hour period. And that makes a lot of what our bodies do work better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that you dove in into your book was um, the word insomnia. And you say that it's often misused. Can you give us a clear definition of that? Sure. So I think the best way to think about the way that it's misused is if you just, you know, hanging out on an, you know, in, a, in an outdoor mall, wearing your mask, appropriately socially distanced. And as people walk by, just ask them, what is insomnia? My guess is they're going to tell you, I don't know, it's when a guy can't sleep. So that's, you know, so this idea that insomnia is when an individual is unable to sleep or is not sleeping enough or is sleep deprived, that is not actually the definition of insomnia. The definition of insomnia requires two two things. The first is it's an individual not sleeping when they've decided they want to. So the individual's gone to bed at 10 o'clock, they've hopped into bed expecting and hoping for sleep. And unfortunately, an hour has passed and they're still awake. So the expectation of sleep at 10 o'clock was not met. It's now 10, 30, 11 o'clock and they're still awake. So that's part one, not sleeping when you've decided that you want to. Part two is 
you have to have a negative emotional response to it. And this relates back to what we were talking about earlier. If that individual says, oh, well, it's 11 o'clock and I'm still awake, but that's fine with me. I don't think that individual's ever going to have insomnia. And that's really the difference between a sleepless night and insomnia. The insomnia actually implies a judgment or an interpretation, um, meaning that I don't meet people who come to my clinic for, quote, insomnia help who don't care. They often care quite a bit. They're extremely upset by the situation, which is why I meet the most interesting people in my clinic who have insomnia because I think insomnia tends to live in people who are detail-oriented, intelligent, type A, problem solvers, you know, the people that you would see in a university or an Ivy League. I mean, these people are pushing hard. They want to succeed. They're really you know, pushing themselves to the limit and they're, they have high, high expectations of themselves. And when you yeah. apply that to your sleep, sometimes negative things can happen. So, you know, we think of insomnia as just that, the sleep not meeting an expectation and there being a negative response to it. That That's very different from sleep deprivation, which is something preventing you from getting the amount of sleep that you need. And one quick way to sort of distinguish them is that the average insomnia patient is not particularly sleepy the next day. In fact, that's sort of the rub is that they're going to bed at 10 o'clock and telling you they're not falling asleep till three or four o'clock in the morning. So that's an incredibly unsleepy person. They've gotten in bed at 10 and three o'clock in the morning, they're still awake versus the typical sleep deprived person, the guy who's pulled the all nighter before his, you know, chemistry and philosophy exams. He's gone 36 hours without sleep. Now he's finished his exams. He's gone to the, you know, a restaurant to grab something to eat, sat down at a booth, started eating and his friends are taking pictures of him because five minutes later he's fallen asleep in the restaurant with all of his friends. Like, of course, because he's sleep deprived. So now his brain is becoming extremely motivated to get the sleep that it has to have. And those are the kinds of things you see with sleep-deprived people is that they fall asleep at stoplights or in lectures or on dates. Like these are the kinds of behaviors you see with those people. Insomnia people are actually almost the opposite of that. And um, I just wanted to add on and say, do you have any – like a lot of people have conflicting opinions on – the number of hours that you should sleep. Do you think there's an optimal number for the number of hours that people should sleep for? Or is it just um, up to them? I, I think that there is an optimal number. I think the problem we often have with that discussion is it centers around the number eight, that you've got to get eight hours of sleep. And I think that's always dangerous to apply an average to an individual. So I think it's perfectly fair to say for the average young adult, eight hours of sleep on average is what is best for you. Um, the problem is if you live on either end of the bell curve, that piece of advice I've just given you can be harmful. So if you're somebody who needs nine hours of sleep, and they certainly exist out there, 
I've just told you to seek eight, which is going to create a sleep deprivation situation in you. You're going to say, well, forget this nine hours of sleep that's always worked so well with me. Chris says I should get eight. So instead of going to bed at 10 and getting up at at, 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 at seven, I'm going to go to bed at nine, get up at seven um, and, and get 10 hours. And so now they make that change. And they're telling their doctor a month later, oh, I'm really struggling with my sleep. Well, what do you mean? Well, I get in bed and I just can't fall asleep. I need something to help me fall asleep because I've got insomnia now. Um, so if you go the opposite way and you're somebody, I've told you you need eight hours of sleep, but you actually need seven and you start trying to seek eight. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I messed that up. Um, the individual who needs who needs nine hours and now you start getting eight we sleep deprive you because now you're yeah. getting one hour less than you should. The flip side is the individual who needs seven hours, who's now trying to get eight, is going to say that he or she has insomnia because he's going to bed, seeking eight. His body only needs seven. And so he's not going to be real motivated to sleep in that first hour. So I do think it's something that we all need to kind of figure out for ourselves with the understanding that we have to be very careful because some people – possess genes that allow them to function quite well with an inadequate amount of sleep. And, and they exist everywhere at, at universities and medical schools and law schools. I mean, these are individuals that can go to bed at midnight, wake up at three, study, 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 take exams. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, you know, Carl only gets three hours of sleep at night and he's a, he's a monster. He's so smart. You know, just because you can do it, doesn't actually mean it's a healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like it also links back to the idea that just because we're all the same species, we're actually all different in many ways. And there are different types of sleep schedules. So linking back to like sleep cycles, um, such as, you know, monophasic cycle, biphasic cycle, dimaxion cycle. And the one that really piqued my interest was the Uberman cycle, which consists of <laughs> like six to eight naps across the day, just lasting 20 minutes long. So in your opinion, do sleep cycles have an effect of, on our quality of sleep? And which one is the best to stick to to be as productive as possible? Yeah, there's a great Great article. Um, if you look it up on men's health, it's written by a guy named Grant Stoddard. Um, and he probably wrote it 10 years ago. I, I can't remember. I remember him mm -hmm. calling me and asking me some questions about it. But basically, he put himself through the Uberman schedule. And he's such a gifted writer. And he really threw himself into the schedule. And it's amazing to listen to read the way he chronicles uh, his experience with it. So my, my personal belief is that probably a monophasic or biphasic night is ideal. Um, I would say monophasic, but there are some researchers. There's a fantastic um, uh, uh, researcher um at uh, Virginia Tech. So he's not a sleep doctor, which is really interesting. He is actually, I believe, an historian. And he wrote this fantastic um, uh, um, book um, about uh, sleep. Um, his name is Roger Eckerich, E-K-I-R-C-H. Um, 
and I think it's it's at day's close, a journey you know a journey into the night or something like that. But it's it's this fascinating historical sort of review about how people used to go to bed at night, sleep for you know three four hours, wake up in the middle of the night, you know light their lantern and walk around at night and you know, visit each other and do interesting things at night. Then they would come back to their homes and have second sleep. So it was very common in you know times of old for these individuals to break their sleep up into two blocks. And so there's some thinking that perhaps maybe that was what we were meant to do. So if somebody says to me, look, Chris, I go to bed, I sleep for a while, wake up, you know, I use the bathroom, I read a little bit, then I go back to sleep. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I mean – the, the analogy I always use is like a concert, you know, so you go to hear the killers play or something like that. You're probably not going to be too upset if they take a little 20 minute intermission and then come out and play some awesome songs and finish the show. You know, you, you know, it's, it might not be nice to take a little break and stretch your legs and, you know, get something to drink. If the killers took seven intermissions during their concert at random times it might start to irritate you a little bit. And even, you know, when you came back home and you're talking to your friends, how's the concert? You'd be like, that was terrible. And your friends are like, what? They didn't play this song. They didn't play that song. They didn't play, you know, read your mind. You know, well, yeah, they played read your mind. Well, did they didn't play this song? Well, yeah, they, they played Spaceman. Well, what are you complaining about? And you're like, well, I don't know. They just kept taking these weird breaks and it just kind of took me out of the flow and the, the, in the, the concert, you know, it just didn't have the same like impact because they kept stopping and starting, stopping and starting. And I think sleep's like that too. And, you know, the, the, the experience that I have with that was when I was on call as a medical student and resident and intern and all that stuff, you know, we'd be on call at night. And if you added up the amount of time that I spent sleeping in the call room one night, it was probably five hours, five and a half hours, you know, maybe even six. So you would think, okay, well, you got six hours during your call. You should feel great. Well, those six hours were broken up by calls from the emergency room, calls from the ICU. Dr. Winter, you got to come here quickly. Mr. Stevens is crashing. Dr. Winter, we need you because the IV you know, screwed up and you need to start a central line. Like there was all, you know, so you get up and like fix your hair and brush your teeth. So you didn't have terrible breath and you go deal with the emergency and then you'd come back and then you'd sleep a little bit in your call room and you get woken up by your patient. So, you know, so when you, so even though you got the hours, the fragmentation of it left us feeling like we were hit by a train the next day. So mm -hmm. I think sleep works best when there's some degree of continuity. And with every interruption that you make in that continuity, you're probably degrading your sleep a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it kind of relates to how, um, well, how Dr. K puts it, Dr. K is another doctor and a Twitch streamer, and he's behind the company Healthy Gamer. And he states that we are intrinsically made to wake up in the mornings and sleep at night. And that in his opinion, we should be doing most of our, of our tasks early on the day because towards the end of, end of the day, our mind is, isn't really as calm as it was in the morning and it is mentally drained towards the end of the day. What is your take on this theory? Should people, is it, is it true that people are intrinsically made to wake up in the mornings and sleep at night? 
We are, and that probably has some pretty deep biochemical underpinnings. Um, when you look at the chemical melatonin that's made in our pineal body or pineal gland in our brain, it's in, intrinsically linked to not only our circadian rhythm, but it's linked to these receptor cells in our retina. So when these specific cells in our retina see light, that creates a signal that eventually suppresses melatonin secretion. And humans are sedated or made to feel sleepy by melatonin. So people think of melatonin sometimes as a sleep aid. It's really not a sleep aid. It's a timing aid. What melatonin's doing is taking our intrinsic sleep cycle and trying to link it, just like Dr. K said, to day and night. So without melatonin, if you took that whole system out of our brain, we'd all be walking around sleeping our seven to eight hours. But when I would run into you, I'd be like, hey, what's going on? I guess you're like, oh my gosh, we've got to record this podcast real fast because I'm getting ready to fall asleep. You know, if maybe mm-hmm. a, a year from now we record it again, you'd be like, oh man, I'm sorry. I'm running a little bit behind you. I just woke up. Like you would still be getting that seven, eight hours, but it wouldn't be linked or sort of yoked to the 24-hour axis that we all live within. So that's the beauty mm-hmm. of melatonin is that it keeps us all kind of running in a schedule where we're awake during the day and asleep at night. If you look at raccoons, they actually have the same sort of synthesis pattern of melatonin, but melatonin actually activates them instead of making them feel sleepy, uh, which is the reason why they're kind of, you know, if you're listening to a raccoon podcast, I'm a huge raccoon podcast connoisseur, and I was just listening to one the other night, and they asked the same question. Hey, do you think that raccoons are made to be awake during the night and sleep during the day? You know, so so it's all sort of this biological rhythm. Now, you do find people who are more night owls and more day people, but no, I agree with that. We're sort of designed to be functional during the day in a way that's probably because our vision's not that good and we're terrible at defending ourselves from predators. So it's probably a good idea that humans are like running around during the day where we can see stuff. And at night, you know, we're like taking our nuts and fruit that we've gathered and hiding up in a tree or a cave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he definitely agrees with you on the point where you said, um, even though there are night owls and early birds, um, he does say that the early birds are obviously uh, much more productive, and that's because um, that our mind is more in a calm state in when you when you wake up. And he also says that when you are a night owl, it's more of like when you're working at night, you have almost like everything in your head that happened throughout the day, and that's kind of mentally deteriorating for you. And I just wanted to ask you another um, question. What is the definition, in your opinion, of good quality sleep? And what does it mean? Is it a subjective term or? Yeah, I think, no, I think good quality sleep is something that is objective. It's just a bit obscure, meaning that the average person probably doesn't have access yet. I'll, I'll qualify this with yet um, in terms of the ability to sort of measure that. Meaning that if you come into a sleep study and we have you hooked up to a polysomnogram every night, we can actually, you know, look at your sleep and designate it. Ooh, what a gorgeous night of sleep. That sleep belongs in a textbook or, oh, 
this person's sleep is really quite bad. Um, I said yet because I think that consumer-grade technology for monitoring and measuring sleep is profoundly improved over the last 10 years. And when I think back to when I got started in sleep around, God, 1992, I mean, leaps and bounds. So I can't imagine Mm -hmm. what consumer sleep technology will look like a decade from now. It may very well be able to characterize and evaluate sleep better than we can today. So um, the way I define quality sleep is based upon the way the individual's functioning an hour before or an hour after lunch the following day. And I I don't like to focus on the way somebody feels when they first wake up because you know everybody kind of feels a little groggy when they first wake up. But once you wake up and take a shower, get something to eat, get dressed, make your bed, it's very important you make your bed. How do you feel? How did you function during the day? Are you somebody who just race through the day with high efficiency and great ideas or were you somebody who you know had to like walk around during a meeting because you were so tired and you're always eating crackers when you drive from place to place because if you don't you you tend to sort of nod off are you somebody who just is obsessed with napping and sneaks out to your car during lunch breaks to take naps because you're so tired i mean do you feel like the sleep that you got the night before is making you effectively unsleepy the next day. That to me is where I sort of measure, you know, quality sleep. Um, and then, you know, secondary things, you know, if I, if I told you for the next week to add an hour on to your sleep period, what would happen? Would your body, you know, rapidly consume it or would you sort of disregard it? Hey, you told me to go to bed an hour early and I did for the last week, but all it did was make it harder for me to fall asleep. Or did you, or would you say, Hey, I went to bed an hour earlier, like you said last week. And Oh my gosh, I, I would fall asleep so fast. I just feel so much better at the end of this week, having spent seven hours sleeping a night versus six. So there's lots of indirect measures, but I think in the book, I said, there's something called an Epworth sleepiness scale, E P W O R T H. And, you know, if I had 30 seconds with somebody to determine how well they were sleeping or not, I think that's such a fantastic tool. I'm kind of in awe of of Dr. Epworth for for figuring that out. And, you know, people may tweak it here and there, but it's such an elegant little eight-question tool that really helps you characterize somebody's degree of sleepiness very quickly. And if you're scoring like a four or a five on an Epworth, I'd say chances are your sleep's probably pretty good. If it's 17, yeah, we've probably got some things we need to talk about. Yeah, relating back to what you said at the start of that answer where um, where you talked about technology on the rise, um, a lot of researchers say that we can, uh, if we can monitor health uh, continuously, but passively in a patient's natural environment, that that would help dramatically. And experts say that artificial intelligence might help researchers just do that. And it has the potential of changing sleep medicine entirely. Now with technology and AI on the rise, how far do you think um, it can help with the matter of sleep for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you actually look at the numbers within sleep, 
we're still not doing a great job of diagnosing the disorders that are existing out there. Yeah. You know, looking at things like sleep apnea, looking at things like narcolepsy and restless leg, these are mm -hmm. among some of the most underdiagnosed disorders out there. And this, you know, again, all relates back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the, of the podcast. So the idea that you know, your Apple Watch might tell you after 30 days of wearing it, hey, user, I'm a little concerned about the v volume of snoring and, you know, how much you stop breathing during the night. Your average oxygen saturation last over the last week was 84%. That's not good. You know, and I think about when I diagnose somebody with sleep apnea, who's got, I just diagnosed somebody with sleep apnea yesterday who had 78 10 second or longer breathing problems per hour. And the thought I always have about that patient is I wonder when this started. You know, today is December, you know, December 10th, you know, 2020 or December 11th, 2020. I wonder if this person has had this disorder two years, five years, seven years. I, I'm, you know, I, I was thinking about that patient a couple of days ago or yesterday, and thinking, yeah, I bet he's had it at least, you know, half a decade. Mm -hmm. So, what is the cost to his health in terms of that five-year lag between condition onset and diagnosis? And one of the obstacles is. You know, there's no insight there. Now, maybe his wife has been telling him for the last five years, sweetheart, you scare me so badly at night with your breathing. Go to the doctor. Talk to him about it. Oh, everybody snores, honey. It's nothing to worry about. You know, I, I have no idea what's going on there. Maybe the doctor's mm -hmm. been berating him to go see me and he just hasn't. But often <laughs> that's not the case. And so now this guy can go to his primary care doctor and say, hey, listen, my Apple Watch keeps telling me um, stop everything and go immediately to the, the nearest sleep center and have a sleep study because I'm having desaturations down to 83%. And it keeps saying something about atrial fibrillation at night. <laughs> like, you know, that mm -hmm. that's where tech could not only save a life, but could save lots and lots and like enterprise scale amounts of lives because this is a disorder that, you know, my guess is that the people who have it, we're diagnosing and treating half, maybe, maybe less. I, I don't know. I think there's so much sleep apnea out there and it contributes to heart attacks, stroke, arrhythmias, heart failure. And if we could just get a hold of these people and treat them, it's, it's not that hard and you can radically alter the trajectory of their life and their health. Like I tell patients all the time, you by coming here and treating your sleep apnea have probably just added five years to your life easy. And not just years, but like quality years. You know, you've delayed the heart attack that is coming in the future by seven years now by you treating the mm -hmm. sleep apnea or something like that. I mean, so to me, AI can do a lot but I can't imagine a condition or a, 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 a medical space where it could do more than sleep because we're providing that device data eight hours worth every night. It's just sitting there. 
We just need to capture it. And if your bed can capture it, my bed has got all these sensors built into it, capturing data every night. And it always wants to talk to me at lunchtime. Hey, you want to talk about your sleep last night? Like, no, I don't, man. <laughs> Leave me alone, bed. You're really on my nerves. Uh, you know, so, but no, I'm mean, be, being serious. Like the watch, the bed, the strap in your underwear, God knows where they're putting these probes. And, and they really can make a huge difference. My only question is, is the medical infrastructure ready for the number of people that these things could actually help? Yeah. And just to wrap this episode up, I would like to ask you one last question. And that is, what is your opinion, self-examination before sleeping? As like a Stoic philosopher, um, Epictetus once said, allow not sleep to close your um, weirded eyes until you have reckoned up each daytime deed. What did I go wrong? What did I do? And what duties left undone? For, for from first to last review your acts and then reprove yourself for wrenched acts, but rejoice in those done well. Oh, I love that. So I, I think there's a dark side and a bright side. So the dark side, I would say, is that a lot of people get into bed and they will say something like, I can't shut my mind off at night. And they're telling me all kinds of things are running through their heads and, you know, stuff, little trivial things that they didn't really think of during daylight hours. But now they've gotten to bed. You know, they're concerned that when their coworker said, hey, does this outfit make me look fat? And the person said, yeah, it really does. And now they're thinking, oh, I really should not have said that to that person. That was really I wasn't trying to be unkind. I really do think that this wasn't a very flattering outfit. And why am I thinking about this at 12 o'clock at night? So I, I think we have to be careful about that. But I do like you know this philosopher's idea that we don't go to bed to suddenly become unconscious. Like I think mm -hmm. a lot of people deep down are scared they're going to go to bed tonight, turn the lights out, and they're going to be awake. And so I love the idea, and I tell this to my patients all the time, go to bed with a plan. So plan A is you go to bed and you fall asleep, and next thing you know, the alarm clock goes off and you're off and running. But what's plan B? What's, what happens if tonight when you go, get in bed and turn off the lights, you don't fall asleep right away? I love the idea of sort of thinking about the day in those kinds of terms, like I really think that my son and I had a nice day today and our relationships relationships been a little bit strained, but we had a good day today and really connected on a good level. And, you know, I enjoyed the walk I took with him. And, you know, uh, I was thinking about this phone call I had with a friend and I think I could do more for him than I'm doing right now. And maybe I'll give him another call tomorrow and reach out a little bit more. Like, so I love the idea of evaluating. I tell this to all my athletes all the time go to bed and I want you to think about last night's game and the ball that went between your legs or that bad pass you made to your, your, your teammate. And I want you to imagine the situation again in as much detail as you can. And this time you make the perfect pass or this time you get your glove all the way onto the ground, make the catch, throw the guy out at first base, like take the mistakes you made and rehearse them properly. Um, the brain doesn't do a good job of determining what you're actually doing or what you're just thinking about doing. So mentally shooting free throws at night actually will make you a better free throw shooter. So I like the idea of a little personal reflection 
an assessment at night that you it's like almost like prayer you know you have some sort of ritual that you do at night and if halfway mm-hmm. through your prayers or halfway through your assessment you fall asleep that's okay and if you don't you'll just do a little bit more assessment tonight so that embracing of being awake at night is really the secret to everything. I tell people all the time when I lecture about insomnia, I always tell the audience, I'm 47 years old. I will never have a night of insomnia. And there's all these mutterings and chirping and stuff through the audience. I said, now, wait a minute. I didn't say I wouldn't have a sleepless night. I said I wouldn't have insomnia. And the difference is that if tonight I get in bed, it takes me hours to fall asleep. I can assure you, I don't mind. I have plenty to think about in my life. Yeah, I love your opinion on that. And just to um, wrap this up, thank you so much for um, coming on the show, Dr. Winter. Well, it's it's been a pleasure. Uh, I wish your 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 podcast um, uh, the most success. And uh, if any of your followers want to follow me on Twitter, it's at, at sportsleepdoc.com dot com or I'm sorry at sports sleep doc and um, appreciate you buying my book and reading it and hopefully other people who listen to this will get some benefit from it too and and just wanted a quick announcement that I'm I'm, I'm finishing up a, a second book called the rested child about oh. sleep in, in young people from the time they're born until the college years I always feel like older kids are always excluded it's always about how to get your baby to fall asleep at night or then it's about older people but I think that young people, high school, college age students can have some remarkably interesting and unique things going on with their sleep. So the rest of the child will be out early next year through Avery Books. And maybe I'll get to come back on your podcast when you're super popular and we can talk about that, too. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely pick that book up. It seems really interesting. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. Very nice talking to you. 